My wife had told her mom when she was eight years old or something, I will never marry a pastor. <laughs> and again, who was the joke on? You know, I mean, she married a geologist, but this geologist became a pastor. And, well, she wasn't going to divorce me, of course. But uh, I ended up being a pastor for about 15 years. And, uh, and then towards the end of that work, God started using me to travel again, go overseas, to train others. Okay, it's okay. Mostly, and then that spread to other countries that uh, God, God was calling to be pastors. Now, what I want to talk to you about tonight is this whole subject of calling. And as I start, I want to ask you a question. How many of you know that you know that you know your purpose here on earth? How many of you would say, raise your hand. I know that I know that I know my purpose here on earth. So don't be shy. It's okay. I mean, some of us do know. Some of us really do know. Okay. I'm just look around and look at the number of hands. I just want you to gauge that, all right? No embarrassment here, but you do hold up your hands. It's okay. I mean, put them a little higher than your head so we can see. All right. Thank you. All right. All right. Great. That's wonderful. How many of you have mm, a hint? You've got a, maybe a, a sense of what it might be, and you're kind of sorting it out as you go. Anybody in that category? All right, look around again, get a gauge on how many. Is it a little bit more than what we had before? All right, how many of you don't have a clue and you wish somebody would tell you? Preferably God. Anybody? Anybody? All right, eh, maybe about the same size as the first group. How many didn't raise their hand at all and are waiting for their category to be called? All right, what's your category? I don't You don't know. What? Okay, you're still wondering. Okay, anybody else want to make up a new category? Anybody? I'm here to glorify God, but what's my vocational call? All right, there we go. Okay, so she's knowing her purpose. Isn't she smart? Knowing her purpose to glorify God, but what's her vocational call? That's another thing altogether. I know that I agonized over that for a long time. When I went to college, I thought, okay, I'm not sure. Do I be an artist or a geologist? I was equally interested in both. And how different are those two, right? Art, geology, what have they got in common? You know, when I went out and did field work, I did nice drawings of the rocks. <laughs> well, you know, I, I found, I was talking to Paul when I got here, and I found that God honors people who are willing to make a start, even though they don't know where they're going. You know anybody like that in the Bible? Who really didn't know where he was going, but made a step? Who was that? I think of Abraham, exactly, is what I was thinking of. Abraham, what, what was the call that God gave him? Go to a land... That I'll show you. Okay, where is it? He just says, just start going west. Stop asking questions, you know. And I think, what an amazing faith that man had. God said go, and he didn't know where he was going. But he just went. Now, it depends on what kind of a group you run with. There's, in the church, Christian church, there's many views of what is an authentic call. And there's some who have the sense that if you haven't gone to the mountain... And heard the call of God and come down with a crystal clear vision, then you really haven't heard from God and you didn't have a call. Some others may come from a school sort of like Abraham. I know God said go. I got a sense of the direction, but I really don't know the destination. For all of us, call comes very differently. But I know for myself when I was young, it was one of the most frustrating things I had to deal with. I didn't know my vocational call. I would have been glad to be an artist, a geologist, an oceanographer. And even after I finished seminary, it was still, well, is it a pastor, a missionary, a professor, a counselor? I still laying four things on the table. 
What's your purpose? One thing I've learned over the years is that God is God is just as just as interested in you knowing your purpose. I, I take that back. He's not just as interested. He's more interested in you knowing your purpose than you are. I mean, would you say that you're, you want to know your purpose? Would you say you're hot on the trail? Would you say, yeah, I really want to know? Well, God wants you to come into that purpose even more than you want to come into that purpose. That was one thing that comforted me. And it comforted me to know that, that I wasn't having to wrestle with a God who loves deceit and who loves deception, but I was wrestling with someone who made me for that purpose and wasn't going to be satisfied till I was in that place for which he made me. Amen? And the same thing is true for all of you. Now, I'd like to take a look at a passage in Scripture that, it's, what, it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's a great passage. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 49. Isaiah 49. And so, I've got an NIV, and if we've got some other translations, we may hear from those as well. What I want to talk to you about is how when we're willing to just say yes to God, that he brings us to places that are even more than what we'd imagine, even better than what we could have conceived of on our own. That's basically what I want to share with you tonight. But let me illustrate it with some of the people's lives in the Bible and, and with my own life as well. Isaiah 49, I'm going to be getting right at verse 1. And just to set the, the background for this, this particular passage is what's called one of the, the servant passages. And the chief figure here being referred to is the Lord himself, Jesus. It's a messianic passage. But it's also a reference, it's kind of a triple meaning. It's a reference also to Israel as the servant of the Lord, and it's a reference to us as servants of the Lord. So we can read it on three levels. And so let me invite you just to kind of enter into it too. Read it for yourself, but let's read it through the eyes of the Lord, through the eyes of Israel. Here's what the prophet says. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me, and from my birth, he made mention of my name. I want to stop right there. This is a reference to Jesus. We know that you know, when Jesus was born, when he was conceived in Mary's womb, that wasn't the first thing that God knew about him. That his purpose came much before, right? But the same is true for us. And I love the passage in, in, in Ephesians. You've, you've seen that before, right? In Ephesians chapter 1, have you seen this? It says that before the foundation of the world, before the world was established, God's plan for you was established. Now I changed the wording a little bit, so you can, but God picked you before he created the world. And I, I'm so encouraged by that thought, to know that we are not here by some random chance. Certainly not some random chance of evolution. I'm, again, as a geologist, I look seriously at that issue of evolution and creation. We are not here by some random chance, a roll of the dice. But the scripture says very plainly that we were chosen. Let me read that for you. Or if somebody has it, would you go ahead and read it? I think I've got it here too, but let me hear it in your translation. Anybody want to read? Or shall I? Okay, here it is. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I just love that. I love knowing that. That it refers straight back to what we're seeing in Isaiah. That Jesus himself was chosen well before he was born. And the same thing that's true of Jesus is true of us. Now, 
okay, great, we're chosen. That doesn't help me a whole lot. I'm still kind of wondering what's going on, right? All right, let's read on. Verse 2. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. I'm going to stop there again. Now, as we see how people are called throughout the Bible, it's never really always one way. Again, we can have a view of what the call should be. And maybe we hear a friend that has a call and we think, oh, I don't have a call like that. I'm not talking a call to something, but my call did not come the same way. I didn't hear from God. Maybe I don't have a call. The fact of the matter is in the Bible, people heard in different ways. People discerned their call in different ways. And they had different periods of time in which they discovered their call. I think about Moses. When did Moses really hear his call? How old was he? He heard it at different intervals, right? But he was what, maybe? Yeah, yeah, Sean's right. He was 80 years old when he really entered into his call. Well, that's encouraging, right? You know, I'm 30. Yeah, right. i got to wait 50 years. Thanks a lot. You know, we don't really like to wait, do we? We really don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. And yet some of God's best work is done in the waiting room. In the waiting room. Look what it says here. It says that he made me like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. And he put me into a... He made me into a polished arrow. And did what? And notched me in his bow. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that at all. It says that after preparing me, after doing all that work, he put me in his quiver. What's a quiver? A quiver is a place of... Readiness. Waiting. It's a place of readiness. Yeah, readiness and waiting. And I think about that. I think about how long did God prepare Moses? How long was God sharpening the arrow we call Moses? I mean, he got his call at 80. We've got 80 years of preparation. What was he doing with him when he was raised in Pharaoh's family? What was the preparation work then? Let me hear from you. This is going to be quite Q&A. Say again. What was, what was the preparation work? Education. In, education was one thing. What else? Leadership? Yeah, what else? Knowledge. Knowledge, absolutely. All right, why the desert? Why was that necessary? Forty more years in the desert? Brokenness. Brokenness. Humility. What was it? Humility. Humility, absolutely. Long suffering. Long suffering. Dependence. Learning dependency. Hard work. Hard work, yeah. <laughs> now Moses, can you imagine Moses saying, God, when am I going to come into my own? And actually, it sort of ties into what, what comes up next. I'm going to go on in verse 3. He says, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I have said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due me is in the Lord's hand. My reward is with him. Can you imagine how Moses might have said these things? I've labored to no purpose. It's all in vain. It's all been futile. Moses has spent 40 years in Pharaoh's court. He's been training, training under the best. Now, he has an argument with someone. He kills the man. In order to make sure he's not killed, he runs for his life. He flees to the desert, where he ends up marooned in the desert. He finds himself in the company of camels. What esteemed company. And he's there for 40 years. Do you think he was saying, man, I blew it? Do you think he was saying, I labored for naught? Man, my life has been spent in futility. 
Nothing's coming of it. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been there where you felt like, man alive, I missed the window. I screwed up royally. My chance is not coming around again. Moses spends 40 years in the desert and through that preparation of brokenness, through that preparation of being with God in the company, not of camels, but in the company of the Lord, he is royally prepared to be the one who leads the people of Israel out of Egypt. I want to talk to you honestly. I don't know where, what it is where the enemy is getting after you. But some of you is talking to him saying, you've screwed it up. It's in vain. It's futile. Your life is over. <coughs> Not because you're dead, but because you feel like you did mess up. And I want you to hear the word that God speaks to Moses or to learn from his life that it's not over until God says it's over. And to realize that, yes, you were made for a purpose. And as long as you have breath, that purpose still exists. That purpose still exists. And though you may be in the desert, that may be the very place where you need to be to come in the purpose for which you were made. Some of us are like Moses. On the fast track. Wasn't he on the fast track? I mean, he was, he was the golden boy. I saw golden boys in the oil business. You know, and, and, and they're a VP in a major oil company in just a matter of 10 years. They're on the fast track. Moses was on that fast track. And then all of a sudden, he's knocked out. Maybe you've been in the fast track. They knocked out and wondering what hit you. Well, it's not over. That's the good news. It's not over as long as you're with the Lord. It's over if you decide, I give up. All right. Okay, then it's getting closer to being over if you give up. But look where the arrow is. Where is the arrow? In the quiver. But where is the quiver? Where is the quiver? Who does archery? On the back. On the back. Yeah. The amazing thing about this is that while we're trying to find the purpose of God, we're trying to find the call of God, we, being sharpened, being honed, being prepared, are being stored, yes, we're being prepared, yes, but where are we placed? We couldn't be closer to the Lord because we're on his back. And everywhere he goes, he carries us with him. I love that picture. I love to imagine that the quiver is on the back of the Lord and I'm a polished arrow in his quiver. I don't like being sharpened. I don't like it at all. There's a lot of friction in being sharpened, isn't there? Try something with me, all right? Rub your hands together like this. Real briskly. Right? Real briskly. All right. What do you feel? And of course, where does that heat come from? Friction. All right. That's what, that's what happens when glory prepares us. I mean, maybe he prepares us through fiction, difficulty in life, hardship, uh, conflict with other people. All that work is preparation for the real deal. In the meantime, we don't like it. We're saying, God, I want to know my call. I want to enter into the big thing. And he's saying, I'm preparing you. I'm preparing you. And then he sticks us in the quiver, and we're riding around. We're wondering, what's going on? And nothing's happening. But he knows exactly where we are. He hasn't forgotten about you. He hasn't forgotten about you. As you call out to him, Lord, what is my purpose? 
He wants you in your purpose more than you want to be in your purpose. I think about David. I think about David. He came to his call very differently, didn't he? Moses didn't know. Moses waited 80 years to find out. David, though, he knew very early, didn't he? He was very young. Samuel the prophet came to the, his father's house. And after thinking, you know, it was one of his older brothers, the Lord said, no, there's another. And the father called him in from the field. Jesse called him in from the field. And the prophet Samuel anointed him as the next king. Now, how long did he have to wait before his call came into reality? A number of years. Some say maybe 15. 15. Now, maybe you're not like Moses. Maybe... Maybe you're not waiting and waiting and waiting and it's not coming through and you're wondering, where is it? Maybe you're like David. Maybe you've got the call. You know exactly what it is. But you can't step into it. And you're waiting again, aren't you? Either way, whether you're a, a Moses type or whether you're a David type, whether you don't know or whether you know the call, you still have to wait. And what happens when we get that call? What do we want to do? We immediately want to go into action, don't we? Mm -hmm. And yet David still had to wait. Now where was his wilderness? Right there in his backyard, wasn't it? He was a man who had to run for his life too. Because King Saul was threatened. And was determined to wipe him out. Again, what do we have? Affliction. Again, what do we have? Hardship. Again, what do we have? Solitude. Again, what do we have? Waiting for the call to be consummated. We have a problem, I think. I mean, I know I have a problem. Maybe you don't have a problem. We're, you've heard this before. I'm going to say it, though. We're human beings, but we act like human doings. Don't we? And we really want to settle that issue of what am I going to do the rest of my life? That, as Amy said, what's my vocational call? What am I going to do to make a living? Or what am I going to do to find my fulfillment? And this picture that we have of the arrow being sharpened and stuck in the quiver, yeah, it will be notched. Yes, it will be released. Yes, it will fly to a target. Yes, it will do its task. It will do something. But before it ever does something, it just is. It just is. Being in the quiver of the Lord. Now, I was a pastor for 15 years. And my first few, several years, oh, the church was going great guns. But I came into a place where the, the, the church got hit by three different things. Boom, boom, boom. It got just nearly destroyed. Or I felt like it was being destroyed. And I cut out the gun and I said, you can get a better pastor for this church, there's got to be a better pastor because I sure am screwing up. I'm mucking up the works. And I think you'd be better off getting me out of the way so you could really do what you want to do in your church. But through that, you know what? God didn't take me out. He left me in because I needed my desert. I needed my friction. I needed my shaping. I needed my molding. I hated it. I hated it. But through that, God taught me some very valuable things. And one of the things I learned that was so valuable was that I was so busy doing ministry for Jesus, I didn't have time for Jesus. You hear that? I was spending, I said that wrong, I was spending so much time doing ministry for Jesus, I had no time to spend with Jesus. 
What did that say? I was more interested in being a human doing than a human being. I was consumed by my doing and not by being with him. And I wonder, what is it with me? What is it with my soul that I'm not satisfied that Jesus is not enough for me? Why do I have to have accomplishments? Why? Why do I have to have accomplishments to feel like, oh, I'm, I matter now. Now I matter. Look what I did. I built a church. And why is it that the Lord himself doesn't satisfy me? I wonder, what is, what is, isn't that part of the very nature of sin itself? That we have this aching to create a significance, but it's not enough to have our significance flow out of our relationship with God as sons and daughters of a living king. It's not enough. But somehow, we have this distortion, and I believe it comes straight from the enemy, by which we believe it's not enough just to be sons and daughters of a living king. But we have to prove somehow that we matter, and we prove it by what we do, not by who we are. The call of God, and this is what I want to say, as you consider your particular calling, the first call is a call to be, not a call to do. Can you say that with me? The first call is a call to be, not a call to do. Let's say it. The first call is not a call to do, it's a call to be. I, I know I said it wrong. <laughs> I need to go listen to my own tape and learn. Okay. It's not a call to do, it's a call to be. Alright? And I look back on my life, and I think about as I was coming... You know, tonight I was thinking about what was it like when I was 20 or 30? What was it like? What were the things that I struggled with? And that was one of the things I struggled with so much. I wanted to establish myself. I wanted to establish myself as somebody. Somebody that mattered. You know what I mean? I'm not a particularly extraordinary person. I'm not. I'm an ordinary person. And we all want to stand out in a way. At the same time, we want to fit in, don't we? We, want, we have got this, this tension. We want to fit in, so we're loved and accepted, but yet we want to stand out. We want to make a difference. We want to be unique. And we think we're going to be unique somehow by what we do. And yet the Lord says, the greatest, the greatest call, even if you take a Christian path of being great, is the call to be. Is the call to be. That's the first call that's on your life. And so if I were to ask you, I think... You can answer confidently. Do you, you know the call in your life? Yeah. The call in my life is to be a son, a daughter of God. You were called into fellowship with the Almighty, the one who made the heavens and the earth. Nothing less than to be the son and daughter of the living God. That's your call. That's your call. You were chosen before the foundation of the earth. Isn't that remarkable? It wasn't an afterthought. When he called you here, Emily, John, he didn't call you into being and say, okay, now what do I do with him? But he said, oh, I, 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 need, I need John. I need Emily. And he calls us into being. He calls us into being. The first call is a call to be in relationship with Jesus. That's the first call. Now, I'm not talking about kindergarten Christianity here now. That's saying, oh, that's a disappointment. If that's the case, please look at your heart. I remember there was a young lady I met. When I was in my 30s, there was a young lady. And I asked her, I said, what's the most important thing that you've learned from God? And she said, love. 
And I said, how trite. You know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm ready to go to China, right? I'm thinking, how trite. I'm thinking romantic love. Not really, but I mean, but love, come on. But over the years, I've thought about what that young lady said, and I've realized, you know what, she was right. The two greatest commands, what were they? What were they? Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know what I found? It ain't so easy. I mean, there may be people right in this room that you have a hard time loving. Are there? You know what one of the calls in your life is? To love one another. And it's amazing. We're aspiring for great things for God, great conquests for God, and I'm all for it. But you know what? One of the things that distinguished the early church in what really brought so many people to faith was the observation amidst the world that was eating one another alive that, oh, that group over there, they love one another. We've never seen anything like it. But even though they're dead, even though there are people dying of disease, those Christians go over there and take care of them. They actually love one another. We've never seen anything like it. And many people were coming to faith just because of that witness. Because they were people being in love with God. And secondly, being what? In love with one another. A call to be. A call to be in relationship with God. And a call to be in relationship with others in a way that is remarkable. That this world has not seen it's very unusual. Now, you have a great meeting here, I hear. I hear rumors that there's some great stuff going on here. Right? And the power of the Holy Spirit is at work here. But you know what the real test may be in the end? Not did the Spirit move. But did the Spirit move you to love in a way that you've never loved before? Luke 6, Jesus is talking to his disciples and saying, Oh, you love your friends? You love those who love you? Big deal! Do you love your enemies? No, because that's the kind of love that doesn't exist. It's not ordinary. It's not natural. It's not natural to love your enemies. Is it? It's not. It's super natural. And the fact of the matter is, is that if we don't have the love of Christ in us, we can't possibly even begin to love. Never mind our enemies. We can't even love our friends in a way that is selfless. I know I can. The first call on your life is a call to be. It's a call to be in relationship with God. And it's a call to be in relationship with others in a way that personifies the love of God. That's what's happening. That's what's happening while you're in that quiver. You're waiting. You're wondering, when do I get to know what I'm going to do? And you're in that quiver. You're thinking, I don't know. Those arrows are jostling around in there. They're rubbing against each other and you're finding it really hard to love that person who irritates you so much. And God is saying, do you love me? Love your neighbor. Do you love me? Let me see it in how you love your neighbor. The real test in the end as Jesus says in Matthew 7, it's not what great works that we did, what great gifts, what great prophecies we gave. The real work is, did you, did you know me? Did you love me? Were you satisfied with me? So much of my ministry 
was born out of uh, sort of a frenetic activity, born out of what? Not a desire, not a call, but a desire to be somebody, to be somebody. And until we establish this question of who am I, a being question, you're not ready for the doing question. Can I say that? Until you haven't settled the being question, you're not ready for the doing question. Now, the amazing thing about it is that he'll help us settle the being question by giving us plenty of stuff to do. You know, it's funny. <laughs> it really is amazing. It's amazing stuff he trusts to us, isn't it? Isn't it amazing? I look back at my life and think, I can't believe the, the things he let me do. Well, let, let me go on and talk here. Here I am. You know what I mean? I'm entering, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a geologist, I'm finding oil, and uh, it's working pretty good. I'm teaching a class, and God calls me in the ministry, and starting a church, it starts off good, and it seems to, to shatter. Then it, then it revives again, and then God gives me opportunity to do what? He gives me opportunity to go overseas. Not just once, but again and again and again. I'm thinking, this is amazing. Any of you have a heart for China, by the way? Anybody have a heart for China? Has anybody been to China? Anybody from China? Okay. I saw one here. Okay. My wife and I lived in China in 1987-88. We lived there one year. We were English teachers. And uh, our heart was to bring some of them to faith. Now, I really wanted to go back. But then God didn't give me the opportunity. Another, another 15 years, I think, went past before I had a chance to go back again. But this time, when I had a chance to go back, I had a chance to work with the underground church. And at first, you know, I'm really intimidated. You know, I'm thinking, and these people, they, they're, they're being tortured for their faith. They're dying for their faith. They're bringing so many others to faith. And I'm being really intimidated. But I met a Chinese Christian in Hong Kong, and he said to me, don't put them on a pedestal. Don't put them on a pedestal. He said, they're just ordinary people, just like you and me. Do you know that God likes to pick ordinary people? Do you know that? What does it say in Acts chapter 4, verse 12? It says that the Sanhedrin looked at Peter and John and said, what? Observed that they were ordinary people, but that what marked them? That they had been with Jesus. Why? They had settled the being question before the doing question. They were with him in relationship. And because they were with him, just being together. Somehow they were able to do the thing they called to do. But the first remark is, oh, they were rather ordinary people. What made them extraordinary? The fact that they'd been with Jesus. That's what will mark you. That's what will mark you. Not your great exploits. What will mark you is that, boy, you've been with Jesus. Have you been around somebody that just smells like Jesus? Have you ever been around somebody like that? You know what I mean by that? Okay, after you get past the B.O., I know. But, I mean, they really smell like you know you're in God's presence when you're with this person. You know what I'm talking about? There's somebody in that room like this, isn't there? There are people in the room like this. You know, you know this, this person hangs out with Jesus. They're not just talking about it. They're in his presence, and I can sense it. Maybe you're that person. It separates you. It makes you something like the world wants. So, I have a chance to go to China. And I begin a ministry there where I'm training leaders in the underground church. I'm not talking about just training young people. I'm talking about I'm training the pastors that are responsible for training the young people. It's like me meeting all the Paul Andersons in China. There's 50 of them in a room and I'm supposed to train them. And I'm thinking, what am I doing here? 
I need them to teach me. You know what I'm talking about? But that was the assignment. And not just once, but I go every three years. I go three or four times. I've been doing this for six or seven years. And every time I marvel. Because every time God uses me. I'm flabbergasted. And I look at it and I say, God, how could this be? I'm an ordinary person. My own church wasn't anything special. Matter of fact, I almost destroyed it. And yet he used me. He used me. A person who really didn't know what his purpose was. What I've learned about God is that he does have a purpose for us. But the second thing I've learned is that his purpose is always bigger than what we'd imagine. When the enemy came to Eve in the garden, you know how he slandered God, right? And he said, hey, look over there. Why don't you have some of that fruit? It's good. It's good for what? Opening your eyes, right? Giving you knowledge. And when Eve said, well, wait a minute, that's not exactly what God said, if you don't mind me paraphrasing. What's the enemy, what does he intimate? He says, you know, God's holding out on you. He really doesn't have your best in mind. This is better. You'd have more knowledge, more understanding, more insight if you eat from this. And isn't that the age-old lie that hovers over us? That if we give our life somehow to God, we're going to miss out on something. If we do it God's way, we'll miss out. But there'll be something we won't be able to enjoy, something we won't be able to have. You know, there's, there's I don't know how many trees in the garden, thousands of them, and Satan points at the one, the one out of thousands that they can't eat. He says, well, what about that one? Why, why can't you eat that one? Never mind that there's 2,000 they can't eat from. And in the end, we find that he was a liar. He's saying, God's holding out. God's holding out. As Eve considered following him, following God, Satan was saying, don't do it his way. You'll lose. Don't do it his way. You'll come up empty-handed. Don't do it his way. You'll come up with less than you ever imagined. But what does the scripture say in Ephesians? You know the promise in Ephesians 3.21? I just love it. It says that God gives what? More. More than we ask or imagine. How much can you ask for? Are you good at asking? Are you good at imagining? Can you imagine a lot? Can you ask for a lot? You know, I think it pleases God that we ask for a lot because he likes to show us just how generous he is how capable he is, how powerful he is. Well, that's what I've learned. This, this verse in Ephesians 3.21 is no longer theory to me. Because if I ask God from the very beginning what my, my accomplishments would be in ministry, you know what? I never would have said, wow, God, I want to be in the underground church in China and I want to be able to teach pastors who have more churches under their care than I had members under my care. I had 300 people in my church. These pastors had 300 churches under their care. I never would have conceived. I never would have imagined to, to think, to ask, oh yeah, that's what you can do. And yet, that's exactly where God put me. Can I tell you a story about some of those people? Yeah. I'm going to get back to the text, but let me tell you a story about some of those people. One of the ladies that I met, she's responsible for children's ministry. And when you think children's ministry, 
This is probably a little different children's ministry than you've ever seen. When she herself was only 11 years old, she heard some music coming out of a house. And was curious to know what it was all about, so she banged on the door. They came, and they found out who it was, and they shooed her away. It was an underground church. But she was not a believer, so they go away. She kept knocking, she kept knocking, and she waited till the end of the service. And when they all came out, there she was. Get away, kid, you bother me, you know? It was a kind of a W.C. Fields kind of a thing. And she came back again the next Sunday, the next Sunday, the next Sunday. And finally realized she was sincere. She really wanted to know what this is all about. They let her in the church in the midst of the music, in the midst of the teaching. She came to know Jesus. And it wasn't enough for her just to, to know him for herself. She had to let all the other kids her own age know who this Jesus was. And before long, she had led half of her family to faith. And half the kids in the village to faith. And another four years later, she won all the kids to faith and started to, and didn't know what to do with them. So she, what she had to do, she had to start a Sunday school ministry. So she started teaching the kids and realized she couldn't do it herself, so she had to train other Sunday school teachers. So before long, all of a sudden, there's, she's got a whole group of Sunday school teachers, a whole group of kids, and they're going to other villages. Fast forward, now this ministry, 20 years later, here's a woman who's raised up Hundreds of Sunday school teachers doing children's ministry, and they send their Sunday school teachers to Southeast Asia, to Thailand, to Vietnam, to the Middle East, to do what? Children's ministry. They make themselves available as um, children's workers in homes of non-believers. They say, we'll take care of your kids. And they teach the kids the stories of Jesus. And before long, the children are believers, and the children lead their parents to faith. This vision of this woman is not just enough. It's not enough for her. It's too little a thing for her just to reach the kids. But she's raising up not just Sunday school teachers, but her definition of a Sunday school teacher is what? It's a missionary. Our Sunday school teachers, we send them off to the nations. And they bring kids to Christ. And those kids bring their parents to Christ. Just uh, last week, or not last week, last earlier this year, I was with another group, and um, it was a mixed group, and, I, and, and there was, as it turned out, there was a, almost a whole family in one of my seminars. There was a, the mom and the dad, and then a, a young man who was in his first year in college, who was at medical school. And I, I was, finally heard the story. As it turned out, I was, the, the guy, the father, drove me back to the airport, and I heard what it, this, the whole story. It's really neat. He said, uh, yeah, I wanted my son to be able to go to medical school. And I said, why? He said, well, in this area, uh, southwest China, we met an American guy. He was a doctor, and he came to China. For three days of the week, he worked in a clinic, and he was paid. But for the other three days of the week, he just volunteered. He did his medical work for free, and he did it so that he could witness to those who came to his clinic. And that's what he did. He won many people to Christ. Well, this Chinese guy was so impressed. He came home, and he told his son and his, and his wife, they were all impressed. They couldn't believe it. Well, the, the boy didn't want to go to medical school. But after hearing that story, he decided, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be just like that. I'm going to be a medical missionary. And he applied to, and he was accepted at eight medical schools. And that's not as big a deal because med, med, doctors there don't get paid a lot of money. So there's not that hard to get into medical school. Okay, It's just a little bit different. But anyway, I met the young boy. And he amazed me. He was so excited 
to be able to learn to be a doctor so that he could share his faith to his patients. As I was driving back to the airport with the father, he told me the whole story, and he was saying, you know, we didn't have money to send him to school. We didn't have enough money. He said, I don't know what I was going to do. He, he said, I got a little minivan. They have these, these little tiny minivans. When you think minivan, think mini, mini, minivan, okay? They call them bread trucks. That's, that's the word for bread. And it looks like just a little loaf of bread going down the road, you know? A loaf of bread with four wheels. And, you know, we all kind of get in and go like this, you know what I mean? So he, had this, he said he had this little, and they really called that. He had a bread truck. You don't carry bread in the bread truck, you carry people. I mean, they just call it a bread truck, so it looks like a loaf of bread. Anyway, so he said, I was thinking, man, I, I can't send my son to college, but I can sell the bread truck. You know, I can get most of the tuition that I need. And this is the way he's going. And he said, and my wife, who was a non-believer, was harassing me. She was persecuting me. She was saying, I thought you served a great God. I thought you served a God who provided for your needs. Where is that God now? You didn't have money to send your son to college. She was rich. She was an unbeliever, and she was rich, and she was taunting her brother. And he said, Lord, you hear what she's saying. He just waited. He waited. He kept thinking, if I have to, I'll sell the bread truck. But before the time came, the deadline for the tuition was sometime in September, a year ago. And um, he said, I just waited. I waited. He said, two sisters came to see me. And they said, we've been praying We've been praying. God has led us to pray for you that you would have the money to send your son to college. And as we were praying, God said, I want you to give. And so they said, oh Lord, how much? And they said, should we give 20,000 renminbi? That's their currency, renminbi, people's money. The Lord said, no. Should we give 10,000 renminbi? No. How much? 7,000 renminbi. So this is a huge amount of money. And so they go to him and they say, here's 7,000 renminbi. That was the exact amount of money he needed for the tuition. For the boy, the boy in college, and he's able to witness to his sister, yes, our God does provide. These are amazing people. These people really, really are an inspiration to me. But they're ordinary people. This man has planted numerous churches. They meet in his home, just like this church meets here in your home, Paul. And he gave up. This man was in the military. They call him the general. That's his nickname, the general. He was a very high-ranking officer in the military. And he gave it all up. He gave up all of his military benefits. In China, you cannot witness outside of the county of your residence. This man left where he was, moved back to his home country, and in order to do so, he had to give up every single benefit. He could have retired rich. He gave it all up because he knew the Lord wanted him to plant a church in his old hometown. That's the call of God on his life. Now, let's finish reading this, all right? And if we have time, I don't think I have time, but I'm going to tell you another story. But let's just finish reading the scripture because this, is, this comes to the climax. Isaiah 49 is where we're reading. And it goes on, and it you know, we read the words of futility in verse 4, where, where maybe like with, you know, like Moses were saying, man, alive, I've wasted my life. But verse 5, the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. Look at this, verse 6. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob, and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you 
a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. Now again, remember, we're reading this through the ears of the Messiah. This is about Jesus, the, the servant. It's about Israel, the servant nation. And it's about us as servants. The first call that was, or one of the first calls that was upon the people of Israel came to Abraham, the father figure. And what was it? I will bless you to be a blessing to what? The nations, all nations. But you know what? They didn't carry it out. They didn't do it. They didn't go to all nations. But the call is still in God's heart, waiting for a place for it to be deposited. And so he sends his son, the new Israel, the Judah. And he says, it's not enough for you to go to the tribe of Jacob. That's what, that's what my translation says. It's not enough. It's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. That's too small a thing. But I've also called you to be a light for the Gentiles, all the tribes of the earth. I want to ask you, what's your tribe? What's your tribe? Do you know what I mean by tribe? We don't have, I mean, we don't have tribes, but we have tribes, don't we? Do you know your tribe? What's your tribe? Anybody? Is it, is it, could be family? What else? Could be friends? But what are they? What do they look like? Are they, do they look like you? I mean, are they people your same age? Are they all same economic sphere? What are they? What's your tribe? Can somebody tell me your tribe? There's Lutheran tribes. There's white tribes. There's, when I, I lived in Texas for 25 years. We had cowboy tribes, right? That's an out, that's a hypocrisy. Anyway, what's your tribe? Turn to your neighbor and say, my tribe is, and describe the people you hang with, the people you feel comfortable with, the people you feel are your homies, okay? All right? Go ahead. Turn to your neighbor. What's your tribe? All right, you got to figure it out. Let me hear some of the tribes that are here. Can I hear some of the tribes? What are they? Let me hear a tribe. Anybody? What is it? Are you? Who said that? Okay, good. Yeah. All right, South Korea. Good. What else? What's your tribe? Anybody? Come on. I want to hear. What's your tribe? Your dorm, right? Yes. What else? All right. Either you're not, either you're 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 just not talking, or I'm confusing you. Which one is it? Are you holding out on me? Don't be doing that now. I want to hear some more tribes. Anybody? Communitas. Communitas is a tribe. All right. Good. All right. Another Bible study. Another Bible study. Yeah. Maybe it's people your same age. Maybe it's people in your same social, economic, ethnic zone. Right. Well, as God speaks, as God speaks through the prophet Isaiah to Jesus, to Israel, and he says, I called you to be my servant to bring back Jacob, to restore this tribe. That is part of your call. You are called to be salt and light in your tribe. That's part of it. That was, that's, verse, that's verse 5. 
Yes, you were formed in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and to gather Israel to himself. He's saying, yes, you have a call to your tribe. But then at the very next verse, he goes on to say, but it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. See what he's doing? He gives the call on one hand and says, this is your call to bring back Jacob, your tribe. Put your tribe in there. What's your tribe? To bring back Korea. To bring back the people that are in your age group, in your ethnic group. But he's saying, but it's too small a thing. He's saying, raise your vision and let your eyes see all the tribes of the earth because I've called you to be a light to the Gentiles. It's too small a thing. And when I hear this, I realize that God does give more than we ask or imagine and that God has a call in our life that is far greater than anything we could have imagined. I thought I was going to be a geologist. And after that, I thought I was just going to be a pastor. And I was content with that. I thought that was big doings. But now, what does God have me doing? God has me training pastors who had as many churches under their care as I had people under my care. Earlier this year, I met with a group, the largest network of churches in China. It numbers in the millions. Some people number it at 8 million. 8 million people in one network of churches. I'm called in as a consultant to show them how to prepare their children's ministry. So I walk them through a leadership development process. That's our specialty, leader development. Shows them how to raise up their youth. A plan they were going to implement this last summer. They implemented this last summer. This movement is so influential that other networks throughout China, and we work with 100 different movements in China. It's like 100 different denominations. So many other movements, many other denominations borrowed their process. And 60,000 kids went through this program that I helped them build. Now, do you think I could have imagined that? Could I have ever imagined that when I went to seminary? An impact in one summer on 60,000 people. God gives more than we ask or imagine. And Satan is a liar when he says, if you follow him... Jesus, you're missing out. I say, if you follow Jesus, you just signed up for the greatest adventure of your life. And if you're willing to handle, if you're willing to settle the being question, you know what? God won't hold out. Because some of you are saying, well, I have to wait. If I have to get this being stuff straight, I'll never get to the doing stuff. That's the lie. That's the enemy. Because if you're willing to get this being stuff straight, you'll be ready for the doing stuff. And you'll have more to give. And if you don't get the being stuff settled, do you know what you'll be giving? You'll, you'll be giving the wounded part of your heart. The corrupted part of your heart. Because you're going to be trying to prove you're somebody even in ministry. Even in ministry. And you'll pass along that weakness that is powerless to change lives. And it's the most self-centered thing there is. So what I want to encourage you tonight, I want to encourage you to hear the first call in your life. A call to be in a relationship with Jesus. And to ask yourself, if, if your heart's going cold, why do I need more to titillate my heart than Jesus? Why is the Son of God no longer enough? 
Secondly, to answer that call to be in relationship with others, relationship with your peers, relationship with mentors, with coaches, counselors, teachers, pastors, people who can pour themselves into your life and others you can pour yourself into. To be in healthy community where you're going to be shaped like that arrow so that when it's your turn to be notched in the bow, you'll fly true. You won't go off target. You'll hit the mark. The goal that God has for your life. And in the process, you know what's going to happen? You're not only going to become, but you're going to do more, far more, than you ever asked or imagined. Amen? Amen. That's the voice of the truth speaking. Jesus Christ, not the voice of the liar. Amen? Amen. Amen. I think I'm going to stop there. I'll tell some more stories, but I think I'll stop there. If I ran out of time. Robert shared a favorite subject of mine, but I haven't shared it with you for several years. It's been three or four years. I wrote a book called Dare to Dream, which is what he was talking about tonight. I'm going to go get some out, and I'm going to be sitting up in the room up here to meet with the newbies. I want to give it out, but I don't want to put it here because I don't want to be too easy for you to grab. I'm going to say, oh, I'm going to read this. I want you to put forth a little effort. If you want to pursue this subject a little more, some of the kinds of things he was saying are in the book that I wrote called Dare to Dream. I love to help people dream that God's got something big for them, something wonderful, something for them to go after. So, thanks. I'll have time to tell another story then, don't I? You do. All right. Well, he's getting the book. You want to hear another story from China? I'm going to get it later. But oh, you're going to get it later. Oh, okay. Tell your story. Are you sure? Do you have time? One more story. This is a fun story. I like telling this story. All right, I, I, I frequently take other pastors with me, and in this particular trip, I took a, another guy named uh, Graham from um, Arizona with me, and uh, we were, uh, I'll need to back up and tell the whole story, but I first invited him to come, um, he said, no, he's not interested, and I needed a partner, I don't to going on, everybody turned me down, well, it was getting really close to the time I needed to leave, I only had like uh, four weeks, and you know, you can't really compare very well for a mission trip for like four weeks, he calls me back, and he said, you still need somebody, 